Nevada in the 1970s was radically different from today's Reno. Buoyed by gambling and the city's historic reputation as the divorce capital of the world, the city had a marginal thumbprint on the national politic. This is unlike today's clamoring to put the northern Nevada city on the map as an arts, food, events, and recreation destination. Tourism in the 70s was the city's mainstay, and events such as the Reno Air Races have been part of the city's tourism efforts for decades. We now join ABC's Wide World of Sports in progress. Calls itself the biggest little city in the world, is nestled in a pretty green valley just east of famed Lake Tahoe. We're headed towards Stead Field where the races actually take place. The highlight of these races, of course, are the Unlimited, a brutal test of power between World War II fighter planes. And Crocker is on the verge of lapping Hamilton's tail end plane. They're flying at more than 400 miles per hour. Reno was known as the country's gaming capital, but it was gradually becoming dwarfed by its southern Nevada counterpart as a gambling destination. Ultimately, the shift in the 1980s to legalized Indian gaming in California lessened Reno's reliance on gaming-based tourism. Reno's attraction as a gambling mecca was memorialized in this scene from the 1974 movie, California Split. Sun's coming out. This rain could have been snow, William. A very, very good, good vibes, good vibes. Good signs. Oh, yeah. Feels good. Red carpets on the street, right? Must have been a beautiful baby. Must have been a beautiful child. Men in orange suits. Where else but in the USA, right? Oh, we got to stop off here and play a little uh, slot machines. Just a little bit, right? No, dude. We'll get straight to uh, the game, huh? Gotcha. When I was on the start, going to keep going. The prominence of casinos, however, has waned over time. Reno's 1970 population of about 72,000 people pales to today's count of more than 245,000 citizens. Reno then, as now, was a draw for low-skilled, blue-collar labor. Just about anyone can move to Reno and find work that pays just enough to get by, as a dishwasher, a dealer, a car salesman, or a cab driver. It was this lure for fast, easy money that drew one young man to Reno in 1979. I'm Bob Conrad, and this is Solutions. Just out of high school, but without a diploma, John Stephen Olawson struggled to learn. In fact, he had a learning disability, dyslexia, that hampered his ability to understand the basics. He was barely 18 years old by three weeks. This is Steve's sister, Suzanne Giles, explaining Steve's first trek out of Chico, California, on his own. And he came up to have a job in Reno with his friend, uh, Tom Wilson, which he believed to be a friend, and unfortunately... He didn't get to come home from his three-week time in Reno for a summer job. He came to Reno to work. For a summer job. To make money. 
and he'd go back to school when he got back. He had a That's Nancy Monnet, Steve's mother. Professor at Chico State had set up a class for him at Butte College, community college in Chico. Because Steve had a learning disability and that he severe. hadn't graduated in it, it, and when he was 18 from the high school. So he had planned just to go on this adventure to Reno with his friend and get the job as a dishwasher or whatever they could get Make some money with his friend Tom that he just barely knew. And he would plan to go back to school so he could get his high school diploma because he was behind in school because of his educational difficulties. How far behind was he? I would say two years. I'm 15 months younger than my brother Steve, and his ability was behind mine. Indeed, a February 1974 psychological report by the Chico, California School District noted Steve's erratic learning behavior while in middle school. Steve is a very quiet, compliant lad, wrote school psychology test administrator David Pitt. It appears he has some feelings of inadequacy concerning his inability to compete academically with his peers, and he is reaching out for help. Pitt said that Steve had difficulty following directions in class and had trouble moving from one task to another. His learning ability was below grade level. Here's what Pitt wrote. In social reaction, Steve expects immediate gratifications of his desires. He appears withdrawn and is turned inward when he encounters stress. However, he is now reaching out for help. But I knew he had uh, educationally handicapped by second grade. And uh, and then there was some of the teachers who said, well, I, I think he just is too lazy to try hard. But as time went on, then they'd uh, you know, said he has, you know, severe dyslexia. He can't, his words are jumbled to him. He can't get them straight. But he really tried really hard. And he just kept thinking, if someone can just teach me the secret of how to learn, I, I can learn. He just knew for sure he could. But um, it just kept building up more and more as he went on. And at one time they wanted to hold him back. And I asked them not to because Suzanne's right behind him. And he was already feeling very insecure with his educational ability, ability. to stay on task with the uh, curriculum at the age that he was. So he ended up going to uh, uh, continuation high school for um, like special needs. And that summer, you know, we got out of school, everybody got out of school and it was just he just was going to leave, and unfortunately, he hasn't been back for 38 years. I was approached last year by one of Steve's high school friends, Tim, who lives in Reno. This is what he wrote. There was an old high school classmate of mine, and he is sitting in prison for a murder he didn't commit, and he was acquitted for. His story is in need of someone with mad skills to write and expose it all, so I thought of you and wondered if you would at the very least be interested in talking with Steve and his advocate. I was.
Steve, whose complete name is John Stephen Olassen, was a timid, quiet kid. Here is Tim Rosine, who originally tipped me off to the story of Steve, explaining his memories of growing up in Chico. Well, I, I grew up in, in Chico, California, and I attended public schools, and Steve was a year behind me. He was a um, class of 78, I think, maybe even 79, but he was at our, at our school, Pleasant Valley High School in Chico. So that's kind of how I met him a long time ago. Um, it was a, it's a small town, or at least it was back then, and his dad was my barber. I mean, that's how far we go back. So here's Tim sitting in a chair in sixth grade, and Steve's dad is cutting my hair, and kind of that's the way Chico runs. So. so he was always friendly. <clears throat> he was always friendly. He was a nice kid. I think I pl- remember him in a PE class when we were both going for a soccer ball, and and I just I went at it and he went at it and we kind of both fell back and that was kind of my last big memory of him in high school is that you know he was one of the kids that I hit and he flew back because he wasn't very he was a tall skinny kid back then and I thought I was a cool senior so did he have any that you're aware of any kind of reputation for any kind of crime or troublemaking no no he seemed like a nice quiet kid when you heard that he was on death row or got sentenced to life in prison, what was your immediate thought? I was pretty shocked. I, and how I heard about it, can I go into that part? Yeah. Um, I had hired uh, a person, Vicky, and Vicky, after a, a week or so, told me that she was married to Steve and that she had to go visit him. He was in Ely, I think, at the time. And he was on death row. And she said, you'd know him. His last name is Olasson. And I think I even whipped out, I went and got a, my yearbook from high school, and we, she goes, yeah, that's him. So um, that's when I found out he had he'd got into whatever circumstances, and he was in death row then, or that he was in prison. How he got there is a story I would come to learn has no good outcomes, not just for Steve, but for his family, the lives and families of two other teenagers and a fourth man who is on Nevada's death row. This is also a story of a Reno police officer losing his life and the lasting damage that has caused to his family. Steve was also sentenced to death, but it's a sentence that has since been overturned. It's a sentence that came down on him within a year of him coming to Reno. In short, it was an undercover drug deal with a Reno police officer that went wrong. Fatally wrong. Steve was one of four involved with the killing of undercover Reno police officer James Hoth. Steve's family is still trying to reckon with how their brother and son took part in a heinous murder, and Hoth's family is still waiting for what they say is justice. Here's Steve's mom and sister explaining their view of what happened in 1979. He had never been away from home, so it was real exciting. And we all thought that it probably we didn't want him to go because he had never been away from his family. But he kept saying, I'm, you know, I'm a man now. I can do it. And we should have known better. And that he was going to come back and finish, get his high school diploma and continue on in college. That that year in 79 when he went back for fall. And so what what prompted him to come to Reno specifically? Just the idea of a well, job? Well, Tom Wilson yeah. came to Chico, our hometown. And he was somebody's cousin that Stephen knew really well. With, uh, and they met 
you know, a group of, you know, high school friends and Tom had this car and he told Steve, let's just go to Reno. We'll get jobs. I've done it before because Tom was 21 and Steve had just barely turned 18. To his family, Steve was caught in an ugly divorce between his parents. He was also easily influenced. His friends said he was a Boy Scout willing to do anything for anyone at any time. And Steve trusted Tom that it, he, that he could him. get him a job. And I mean, Steve looked up to him as a, a follower. But they didn't know each other very well. No. So this was an economic opportunity for Steve. It was, uh, you yes. know, he only knew him, I'd say, probably less than a week. But he was a cousin to one of his best friends. So he felt good references, you know. I think young people are real naive on you don't know. And to me, he was a lot older than Steve. He was 21, but to me, he had, he just seemed older. Steve, the 20-year-old Edward Tom Wilson, who drove Steve from Chico to Reno, and two others, Fred Stites and David Lonnie, were each convicted of killing Hoff. Steve's parents struggled to understand how their son ended up in this situation. Nothing in the story, to them, adds up. Everything was, was going pretty good, and then I think Tom got laid off, and I think that's what led up to uh, him talking to the boys about, you know, um, and he he had found out from, a, I think, the girl that Suzanne was talking about, Lynn Skavansky, she was supposed to be a runner for the police department out of California. Lynn Stefanski, it would come out later, was an informant for the Reno Police Department. And uh, she had said, oh, I can show you how to wrap up uh, baking powder. It looks just like cocaine, and you can sell it, and nobody will be the wiser. And then there was a Bud. I don't know Bud's yeah, last Bud, name. Bud Taylor. Oh, Bud Taylor. And he, he was a instrumental in setting up with uh, Lynn Stefanski and Tom Wilson to do this I guess drug, but it wasn't. There was no drugs. There was no they, drugs, of course. But that they, I think it was a setup, and I think it was a setup to see, um, to be to gain trust. This Bud Taylor and Tom Wilson. I think it was just going to be a dry run thing, and unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way it should have. And four young men have served their whole lives in prison because of a misunderstanding. Yeah, I think Tom had told all three boys that they wanted to go to um, the park to have a, a a run by. He wanted to see the person that was supposed to pick up the drugs. He wanted to make sure he was, I don't know how he could tell. He never said how he could tell. But if it was a real drug dealer, if it was just a sting, is what he told the boys. Why were they carrying knives? Uh, apparently, the two boys... Uh, the two younger boys, they were friends. They kind of palled together. They came from Oklahoma. Oh, Dave Lonnie and Fred Stites. Fred was 18. He, um, and actually, and David Lonnie was 16. And they worked in a restaurant. They at, worked in the restaurant at the Reef Hotel. And they, that's where they got their knives, I suppose. My brother didn't have a knife. Well, he had a, he did have a, a pocket knife. Hello, you have a call at no expense to you from John Olas. 
an inmate at Nevada Department of Corrections, Warm Springs Correctional Center. Steve has been incarcerated since 1979 at the age of 18. He has been trying to get out of prison and to tell his story ever since. Here he is calling from the Warm Springs Correctional Center in Carson City, Nevada. It is what it is. I don't, I don't know if the story is interesting to people. Uh, I don't think people care, right? I think that, you know, that uh, it's a good story. It's a dramatic story to put somebody in prison for the rest of their life. It doesn't matter the details of what you do that for, right? I don't think anybody, not the public, really has to worry too much about, you know, public officials doing that to them. I think that you'd have to fall into this dark, dark corner of, 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 of the, the criminal justice system to be stuck in a situation like me. But I know one thing, it's, it's hell to try to explain that this is happening to me. Those who knew or have known Steve in prison agree with his family's characterization of him as a helper. This is Dr. Karen Gedney, who was Steve's physician in prison, but is now retired. I remember um, Mr. O'Lawson because, especially when I started in the early days, there were what should I say, far less inmates. And also you end up knowing inmates over years. And Mr. O'Lawson was in the prison when I started, and he was in the prison when I left. So that meant, you know, he did 30-odd years there, and I had interacted with him on and off over 30 years. And in general, he basically seemed to not get into trouble, uh, you know, not have major problems. And uh, honestly, he seemed a bit like a lost child almost in the prison. And that's what sort of what's sort of stuck in my brain as uh, the type of inmate he was. You know, he wasn't the type that I ever saw who, you know, got into trouble. No issues or... You don't really, he doesn't strike you as being No, and, and certainly not toward me. You know, there are certain inmates who had issues with me because I wouldn't give them what they wanted. As an example, if someone was an addict and, you know, they had their aches and pains and f- felt that and demanded that I give them that morphine or that Oxycontin or whatever, um... Those individuals, I intermittently had issues where they had issues with me because they didn't get what they wanted. But he was not one of those who ever pressured me for anything. Dr. Gedney wrote a book about her experience as a prison doctor called 30 Years Behind Bars. Gedney's autobiographical account as a prison employee has disturbing and hopeful anecdotes. Can you speak to his character? The only thing that I really knew about his character was that um, he never really spoke negatively of anyone. Um, He was intermittently on and off involved in programs that I remember. He was not a major complainer. Uh, He was sort of one of those sort of milk toast sort of guys, you know, that uh, didn't rise to the point where they there was any incident that stuck out in my mind about him. Yeah, I remember um, 
And what I can talk about is Deborah Sinclair uh, did contact me, and it was really through Elaine Voigt. Deborah Sinclair is Steve's advocate outside of prison, and Elaine Voigt runs My Journey Home, a nonprofit that works with veterans, ex-offenders, and the disabled. Who took on developing the My Journey Home program, was sort of helped inmates when they left. And my understanding is Deborah Sinclair contacted Elaine, and Elaine, who knew I was out of the prison, contacted me and said, hey, this lady really wants to help Steve O. Lawson. Um, is there any way maybe you could talk with her? And I thought, well, uh, now in my third act in life, I'm actually trying to bring some awareness, but that's one of the reasons I brought, uh, wrote the book. And I thought, well, Elaine has always helped, you know, the inmates. I'll just see what she has to say. And Deborah talked to me about Steve's case, which I, I'm not aware of, you know, in the prison. And she showed me paperwork, and she showed me paperwork of studies that had been done on him when he was younger. And in essence, it was one of those tragic cases where, if my memory serves me correct... He was someone um, who helped move a body uh, but had not been involved in the incident, uh, but still was in prison 30 years later. And also it happened when he was very, very young, I don't know, 18 or 19 or something. And she was showing me information that when psychologists had evaluated him when he was younger, he functioned lower than his chronological age. And nowadays, there is more and more push about incarcerating juveniles on lifetime sentences. I, I think one of the youngest juveniles was incarcerated for life at the age of 12 or 13 years old, which if you're a physician or even if you're a normal parent, you know that 12 and 13-year-olds, they don't have an adult brain. And 18-year-old boys, for the most part, they don't have adult brains either. And she was making the point, hey, the psychologist thinks he's a good two or three years even younger that would put him more like a 15-year-old. Steve and his family have been trying to tell this part of their story for many, many years. It's a part of the story that Nevada's legal system has never really allowed to flourish. This taught me a lesson that, you know, you can't trust everybody being good no matter what their uh, profession is. They're doing it for, I think, to stay in the club. You know, they can't say anything. they got to stick together and make that story you know, and and it, it it was they intimidated the family so much that we were really afraid of them. I mean, going to court and having officers come in with their guns on and sitting in the back of the court, it was very intimidating. We believed in justice, the justice, and the, if you tell the truth, you'll, you know, that's the way to do it. And Steve 
didn't do any he, he's not he was he was involved in being there he's at the wrong place at the wrong time and unfortunately he's paid the price of the ringleader which he's not a ringleader at all he didn't have um he did what tom said I, if anybody was a ringleader it was tom and again four people have spent their lives sure. 40 years of their lives i mean my brother's 57 now and he his whole life from the age of 18, I mean, three months and nine days of being 18, has spent the rest of his life not only in prison, but in solitary confinement for the first 11 years, years because he was on death row. I think all four of them were set up, and they were all very naive. And like I say again, the RPD has taken the lives of four young men, and whether a, they are still on this officer. earth or not. Um they lost their lives, and unfortunately, Officer Haas lost his life, too. I asked Steve's family what they would like to see happen to him at this point in time. I hope that, he, that he's able to get freedom before my parents expire, because none of us have deserved what we've had to endure. It's awful, and I want my brother to come home, because my parents deserve to get a hug outside of prison. Andy Bowles is a retired lieutenant for the Reno Police Department. His book, Piercing the Lionheart, is about the death of James Hoth. Andy got to know Steve well. Can you tell us a little bit about them, their background, as, as you're aware of who they are and what their circumstances were? Well, over the years, I actually had a lot of uh, contact with Olawson, John Stephen Olawson. I, happen, I know his, his family. I visit him in I visited him in prison in, in Ely and, and Carson City, um, and I visited the other three, too. Not much, but I visited with all four of them. Uh, Olawson is a Boy Scout. He grew up uh, a nice little Mormon boy. He was a member, uh, he was a member of the Boy Scout troop in his little town. Uh, he he's, comes from a nice, clean, all-American background. He's got some problems. I think he's got, I know he's got a learning disability that he's pretty much overcome. Um, he was just kind of led down the primrose path. And uh, when you're 18, it happens to a lot of us. And the other three, Wilson, he was 20 years old. He was undeniably the leader of this group, uh, and he's the guy who remained the leader and got the lion's share of the blame, and based on what the facts look like, he deserves the lion's share of the blame. I'm not certain, and a jury needs to decide this, I'm not certain he deserves the death penalty. Based on the people who get the death penalty, I'd say he doesn't deserve the death penalty. Uh, the other two guys, uh, Lonnie Styles, and, and, yeah. and Stites. Yeah. Uh, Lonnie's uh, a kid uh, with a lot of baggage from the way he grew up. Very rough lifestyle as a child. I don't think Lonnie, and I know people that knew Lonnie pretty well before this happened. I don't think he was the kind of guy to get in that kind of a situation, but... The way things went down, he did. As far as Mr. Stites, uh, 
I've met him on one occasion, talked to him at, at good length, uh, and uh, he seems to be kind of a pretty nice guy, a guy I might want to go have a beer with someday. But uh, he also had a, a rough lifestyle as a child, and he wasn't a, a troublemaker, though. I mean, this was the first time, to my knowledge, that Stites was ever in any trouble. And he's become a model prisoner, I understand. So it was a perfect storm of circumstances on behalf of the, the four boys that really led them into this killing and drug deal situation, led by um, um, Wilson, Wilson, Tom Wilson. Yeah, it was a perfect storm in, in all ways. I mean, as far as what the police did and how Jimmy got in this predicament and how these boys were... Uh, involved in what happened to them. I don't think that uh, three of those boys would ever have been in much trouble in their lives. Uh, Wilson, I don't know, I wouldn't want to speculate, but uh, he was 20 years old. He was a little more mature than the rest, so we'll never know. Um, It was a very strange situation because there were four defendants in that case. Two of them went to death row. Two got uh, life without. There, th- now three of them are doing life without. Uh, Wilson is still on death row, waiting to be uh, executed. And what happened there is none of these guys got a trial. And even though my background is police, um, I think that everybody should get their their due process. They should be punished accordingly. And in this case. The circumstances are such that on the face of it, and it just doesn't look like they got a fair shake, as angry as the whole situation makes me and everybody else. As somebody who respects the law, I think that this whole case should be looked at again. The killing of Officer Jimmy Hoff permanently changed the Reno Police Department. His death to this day sparks somber recollections of an officer who gave his life in the line of duty. It is his name that is enshrined on a permanent memorial in Reno's Idlewild Park. There is a scholarship named after him at the University of Nevada, and his sacrifice is forever embedded into the legacy of the Reno Police Department. Next on Solutions. You know, Jimmy had a personality. Uh, I mean, people just gravitated to him. He, he had this giggle, laugh, and uh, and he was he's, he's a good policeman. You know, I never worked with him in the in the street directly, but I, I ended up working narcotic cases with him because we were both we were both in dope at the time. But uh, he was somebody everybody looked up to. Did good work, you know, until his death. This job that he died completing was to be his last, his final case. He was going to leave the narcotics unit. As an undercover officer? Yes. To some extent, I think a large extent, the officer in charge of the undercover officers wasn't a competent and a very uh, good leader. 
You know, I've seen a lot of cops with whom I worked get killed. And I, I don't say anything bad about any of them. And I'm not going to. And I think everybody who admires Jimmy and feels bad about what happened to him is right. I think it's horrible what happened to Jimmy Hoff. And nobody. A lot of people knew Jimmy a lot better than I did. He was a good dude. He, uh, he was a veteran. And he was, everybody has the same thing to say about Jimmy Hoff. He was a good cop. And I can't say that about a lot of people. But I can't think of a higher actor than he was a good cop. Solutions is produced by me, Bob Conrad. The aim of this podcast is to investigate complex problems and to seek solutions for them. In Season 2, we are investigating the 1979 case of the killing of Reno police officer James Hoth. Thank you to Samuel Sheridan and Darcy Leonardson for their reporting and research assistance. Season 2 was developed with generous support from the Impact Designated Investigative Grant Program from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation and the local independent online news publishers professional organization, of which we are a member. Visit us online at thisisreno.com forward slash solutions.